Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 15, His Finest Hour. Prussia's response to the French ultimatum with Wilhelm's signature, but Bismarck's stinging words, was read aloud in Paris on Bastille Day, July 14, 1870. Talk about timing. That same afternoon, at 4.40 p.m., Louis Napoleon's ministers called for mobilization, but then held back. After all, the complex intertwined operations that composed mobilization on a national scale was a system of all or nothing. Thanks to the processes of transportation, communication, stocking up on materiel, and the movement of men, there were no longer half-measures. The saber was unsheathed, or it was not. But the French minister's hesitation only lasted six hours, because by then they had found out that Bismarck had sent additional copies of his letter to all the governments in Europe. The Prussian statesman was going to have his war one way or another, and he made sure that the French, at least officially, was going to be seen as the aggressors. And it worked. France began to mobilize. Wilhelm had already secretly ordered mobilization in the north and was joined by the southern German states after Napoleon's orders went out to his men. Bavaria and Baden began to mobilize on July 16th, then Württemberg on the 18th. In the face of this, Louis Napoleon declared war on Prussia the next day. As war had been declared, it was time to implement the full mobilization of French resources. First, men had to be called back from as far away as Algiers and Rome. Officers on leave were told that their time off was cancelled. And, as this was 1870, enormous orders of oats for horses were ordered from the United States. All of this was witnessed by Count Alfred von Valsey, the Prussian military attaché in Paris, as it was his job to spy for Wilhelm, and he dutifully reported it all back to Berlin. Yet, the German mobilization, even though made up of numerous countries, was much more efficient than that of France. Within three weeks, almost 1.2 million German troops were in a ready state, and 400,000 of them with 1,440 cannon, were stationed along the Franco-Prussian border. Yet, for all of this, the leaders of the belligerent countries believed that France was the only country that could take the initiative. And they weren't the only ones. The neutral capitals, the leading thinkers, and the major newspapers all examined the possible routes that French troops could or would take into Prussia. The German people themselves felt likewise, and looked fearfully to the West. Though their corn was still green, farmers cut down their crop, lest the oncoming French troops take or destroy it. As for the German states to the south, though still obligated to send troops to Wilhelm, they readied their tricolor flags to wave at the hopefully appeased expected French invaders. Even their nominal leader, Wilhelm was of the same mind. He didn't order maps of eastern France to be handed out to the troops. The French leaders made the same decision, thinking that their men knew their own land, but would find, to their horror, this was not the case. General Moult, soon to be Field Marshal Moult, 
guessed that the French would be taking the offensive just like everyone else. But his job was to plan for it. So, built into the mobilization plan was the order to send troops into the Saar Valley, along the River Rhine. Those troops would hopefully break the initial French wave and give the German general staff more time to use the men coming under their command. Molt, just like everyone else, could never believe that his would be the first offensive. On July 28th, Napoleon III took command of his troops and stirred their passions with these words. Quote, Whatever may be the road we take beyond our frontiers, we shall come across the glorious tracks of our fathers. We shall prove worthy of them. All France follows you with its fervent prayers, and the eyes of the world are upon you. Unquote. Stirring words aside, the French mobilization was not equal to the Prussians, and by the 14th day, only 53% of Napoleon's men were under arms. But that mattered little to them, and they could hardly be blamed for their thinking. For years, the emperor's uncle, the original Napoleon, had dominated the battlefield, making his enemies feel hopeless before him. And now, one of his blood, with the same name, sat in the commander's saddle. And what about the men under him? They had been honing their skills for the last 30 years, fighting in Mexico and Africa, defeating the Austrians, and testing their mettle in the Crimea. How could the French possibly lose? On the other side, Wilhelm, in his 73rd year, was still more than a match for the French emperor, despite French morale. Not that anyone other than the German king's inner circle suspected this. And the Prussian morale was just as high, if for different reasons. It was also true that Molk's ability outshone his French counterpart, Le Bouffe's, to a great degree. As for the German soldiers themselves, they were riding the wave of Catholic hatred and Prussian songs about destroying the new Babylon, as Paris was known. Ironically, the French officer corps held in disdain the very reasons why the Prussians were so formidable, putting aside Krupp's steel cannons. Efficiency, organization, building their railroads with war against France and mine, the use of the telegraph, was all seen by the French brass as pedestrian virtues. To the French way of thinking, war was glorious, to be fought with passion, not timetables and Morse code. The bravery of the charge was all. That is not to say that bravery cannot win the day, but the science of war had altered significantly since the first Napoleon's day. The French did get it right with their superior rifles, the forty-three caliber cartridge firing Chaspo. And to back this up was their 26-barreled Metalus, which, much like the Gatlin gun, was the forefather of the machine gun. But supporting this impressive dealer of death was France's real weakness, its artillery. And their weakness here would be their undoing. First of all, they possessed 30% fewer larger guns than the Germans, and though rifled, were all of bronze. And much of the blame for this can be placed at the feet of Lubuff. He had personally written Réan Affaire, nothing doing, across a letter from Alfred offering to the French 
cast steel breech loaders, the very guns that were to soon extinguish tens of thousands of France's sons. Adding to this list was the advantages of the Germans. Their cannon had twice the range of the French guns, and they had learned to amass their guns to improve their destructive capability. Also, the Germans wisely listened to their spies, which is rare in military circles, and found out about the Metalus guns and ordered their ordnance units to listen out for the quick-firing sounds in order to take out these guns first. Now came the unthinkable. The Germans were on the offensive, as the French waited for who can tell. On August 4th, at Wiesenberg in Alsace, the two sides came together. The German cannon dominated the day. A French general was killed by a Krupp gun. But a real sign of things to come came two days later at Worth in northeast France. French Marshal Patrice MacMahon was so sure that the Germans wouldn't come, he didn't have his men dig trenches for protection, this being seen as an unnecessary defensive gesture. However, the Germans did come on, and the two sides clashed, with roughly equal numbers, which normally lent itself to a draw, with both sides being bloodied, the survivors limping away. But it didn't end that way. The Germans' heavy losses came as they tried to charge the Chaspo, but were mown down by the Metalus guns. The aggressors would learn in time that these were unnecessary deaths. The decision for this battle, and future ones, could be had by their cannon alone, negating the rapid-firing French guns. But figure this out they did, and spent the remainder of the eight-hour battle letting their great guns throw shells into the French lines, which eventually broke and ran. Germans call this victory the Battle of Worth, the French Frochevillers, but to the victor goes the name remembered. The nearby villagers wouldn't forget this battle anytime soon, regardless of its name as it would take them a week to collect all the French body parts. Thus, the damage done by Krupp's cannons. The tide of war turned to the Germans, who never had a reason to lose it. Their men were joyously singing songs on the march, like Deutschland über alles, while the French troops marched to the cadence, un, deux, trois, mer. By August 6th, most of the French forces had been collected into two main bodies, for reasons ranging from German aggression, geography, and Napoleon's tactics. One group under MacMahon was in Alsace, and the other under Napoleon in Lorraine. Between them was the Vasha Mountains. In normal circumstances, this was sound military doctrine, but Krupp's guns had changed things and negated French strategy. The right wing under MacMahon was falling back from Worth. Meanwhile, the left wing was losing its position on the high ground, 40 miles to the northwest in the Saar Valley. The Germans kept pressing, and within 24 hours, MacMahon vacated Alsace, and the emperor in Lorraine had to make for cover in the fortress of Metz. To give the French their due, it took the Germans three more bloody battles before pushing the French troops who came out of the fort back in and then surrounded it. 
But right before the encirclement was complete, Louis Napoleon managed to escape to MacMahon. Though the general tried to talk the emperor out of it, Napoleon wanted the still-free right wing to rush to the fortress's aid. The general did as his emperor bid. On September 1st, the oncoming right wing was met by German troops, themselves ecstatic at their string of victories. The armies met seven miles from the Belgian border at a small, unimportant fort at Sedan. The general Auguste Ducrot, under MacMahon, had been at Worth and knew what was coming. Before dawn even broke, the 1st Bavarian Corps, feeling victory was certain, ignored their orders from Moult and rushed across the Meuse to attack the hunkered-down French. The French, with their morale low, hid themselves in the 17th-century stone houses. As the rising sun gave just enough light, 16 Krupp batteries began shelling the structures, themselves on higher ground, completely out of reach of the French bronze cannon. Well before the day was over, an entire Zouave division was obliterated, including its commanding officer. The shells pouring down respected no rank. In fact, MacMahon himself was injured and passed his baton and the responsibility to continue the fight to Ducrot. By 8 a.m. the next morning, Ducrot knew his only option was to attempt a breakout and head west and regroup. Some of the generals under him thought him cowardly and begged for the order to charge and trample the offending enemy under hoof. Ducrot wouldn't hear of this, and they argued. But by mid-morning, their words were meaningless. Moult, sensing the enemy's hesitation, threw in three columns across the Sedan-Mézière road and blocked the last way out for the French. So now the French were bottled up, but had yet to surrender. This allowed the Germans to continue to rain shells down on them. This may seem harsh, but according to the acceptable code of conduct during war, the Germans were within their right. It has been written that as the Krupp cannon spewed forth shells hour after hour, not only French soldiers died, but also the independence of the small German states. For who could or would stand up to Prussia now? After viewing this, by noon of that day, even the vengeful French generals knew the day was not to be theirs. A breakout was discussed, but there wasn't even enough men or horses to make a real attempt. At one that afternoon, a message was sent to Louis at Sedan, who tried to gallop towards his dying men and had to be held back. His death wouldn't have solved anything. By three o'clock that afternoon, the French infantry was leaderless. Still, one last attempt was to be made. But by now, the Krupp guns had the range of nearly everyone. And whenever a French officer on a horse made a move, a shell would come and remove some part of his body or kill him outright. Still, the French cavalry would not give up. So, without raising a hand or standing up in their stirrups, something the Germans would have recognized as the beginning of a charge, the French horsemen came on, wave after wave, towards the cannon, until they were all lying dead or dying in the fields, with their equally mutilated horses. Wilhelm 
along with Moltke, Bismarck, Rune, various German princes, and all of their staffs, witnessed this massacre from a hilltop with spyglasses. At dusk, Louis returned to Sedan. He then sent a sergeant with a white pennant to ask for terms and to make sure that a white flag was raised above what was left of the fort. A Prussian nobleman was sent to see Louis and returned with a letter. The writing was from one king to another. It read, quote, Since I could not die in the midst of my troops, I can only put my sword in your majesty's hand. I am your majesty's good brother. Unquote. These were noble sentiments, but they had nothing to do with Bismarck's plans now that victory was theirs. Another French general, Wimpfen, was sent to talk to the Prussian Junker. Wimpfen talked of peace based on mutual respect and avoiding stringent clauses that could only cause further hatred down the generations. But Bismarck brushed this aside with his reply, quote, One should not, in general, rely on gratitude, and especially not that of a people, unquote. Bismarck then made it clear this was not a negotiation, but German demands. The remaining army at Sedan was to surrender, and that included the Emperor Napoleon. Whitfen was speechless. This simply wasn't how it was supposed to go, or had gone in times of battle. Respecting the honor of the losing side had always been a key component of negotiations after the fighting was concluded. As Wimpfen still had nothing to say, Bismarck made it clear that Germany needed land and a line of fortresses to defend themselves against French aggression. Still, the French officer refused to relay this request to his emperor. Then Moltke took a turn. He simply showed the French general the location of Germany's 500 Krupp cannon, all stationed near French troops. In other words, what happened here today could go on, day after day, until there were no French troops left, if German demands were not met. To this, Wimpfen had to respond. He would take the message back to Louis Napoleon. The emperor was equally aghast at the extreme demands and said he would take it up with his royal brother, Wilhelm. But he never made it that far. Bismarck and Moltke made sure that they had their document of surrender signed before the kings met. So, as Napoleon raged against the German nobleman, General Wipfen signed the treaty. Only then was the former emperor allowed to see Wilhelm. But, as the deed was done, as the emperor was taken away to a posh stalag, Bismarck said to Moltke, quote, There is a dynasty on its way out. Unquote. Of course, all this was unknown to Alfred, and even if he had known the role his guns played, he probably wouldn't have cared as much as before. His entire life had become Villa Hugul. He didn't care that war existed between his country and that of the nation supplying the material for his house. He demanded and received, amazingly, what he needed. That is, until the end of the war hardened both sides against each other. But words slowly poured into Germany, and more specifically Essen, of the German victory, but more importantly, how it came to be. 
Alfred was as happy as a curmudgeon could be. His guns had more than passed the test. He had proven himself better than his father, and had proven himself indispensable to his country. Now, perhaps, they would let him get on with his home. And finally, for the most part, the question of bronze versus cast steel was laid to rest. Yes, there were still those who maintained their loyalty to bronze. But then the ongoing war changed in a way no one could have predicted. Two days after Napoleon was taken away, Paris rose to defend itself. After all, when war started, France had Austria, Italy, and Denmark willing to back it. But after all that had happened, and so relatively quickly, those voices of alliance lowered, and the promises removed. But the Parisians still had Marshal Francois Achille Bazin with his 173,000 troops at Metz. And hadn't the fortress stood for 10 centuries? Having said that, it had yet to run up against Krupp guns. And the stonework of Metz would prove to be as ineffectual as Bazin as a leader. The fort was reduced bit by bit, shell by shell. Supplies ran low, and on October 24th, Bazan surrendered. But still Paris, now proclaimed a republic, held out. And would do so, but suffer for it, for another 14 weeks. Meanwhile, Moult, using the French rail system, moved his men closer to Paris. By September 18th, a great pincer movement had been completed. Wilhelm had come from the south, and the Crown Prince, or Crown Prince of Saxony, from the north. The next day, the telegraph lines were cut. Now came the time to use Krupp cannon to subdue the city, as they had the French armies. Most of the cannon were stationed on the Châtillon prominence, and from there, the larger of Krupp's cannon could lob shells 5,600 meters, or 6,130 yards, but that only meant hitting the suburbs of Paris, not enough to coerce the city to surrender. But then, another of Alfred's enemies, he had a knack for making them, the quartermaster general, Pabieski, had his men purposefully overcharge with powder the guns, hoping to tear them apart. Instead, the guns held, and the shells now covered 7,500 unprecedented yards. And the cast guns were able to do this 300 to 400 times a day. The German artillerymen were impressed, but Paris, especially along the left bank, suffered grievously. In a three-week period, 12,000 shells hit 1,400 buildings, reducing them to rubble, which left 20,000 Parisians homeless. The year 1870 ended with Paris still suffering and Alfred ecstatic that Prussia was now his largest customer. This motivated him to spend some time away from constructing his home and instead construct new instruments of death for his country. And in the beginning of 1871, he sent to Berlin the world's first anti-aircraft gun. Of course, at the time, the only aircraft were balloons. But still, each side had been unable to bring down the other's floating message deliverer. But now, the Germans could. 
The Prussian military took one look at Alfred's gun, with its six-foot-long barrel, mounted 15 feet high on a steel block, and approved it, because it was capable of sending a three-pound grenade up 666 feet. So when the French sent up pigeons, the Germans sent up hawks. When the French used balloons, the Germans used Alfred's gun to bring them to the ground, usually ending in the death of the pilot. But this is of little note. Krupp's larger guns went on with their shelling until Paris gave up on January 28, 1871. As harsh as Bismarck had been on Wimpfen, he was harder on France. The treaty he drew up called for a billion-dollar indemnity and the ceding of Alsace and eastern Lorraine. But before the buildings of Paris were finished being shattered into pieces, Germany was made whole. On December 2nd, before the Krupp guns stopped their assault, King Ludwig of Bavaria had sent Wilhelm a letter that Bismarck wrote, asking him to take the imperial title, to be the emperor or kaiser of a new empire, or Reich. In this case, the Second Reich. Bismarck himself crowned Wilhelm at exactly noon on January 18, 1871, in the Hall of Mirrors at Versailles. As the crown was laid on Wilhelm's head, the boom of Krupp cannon could be heard outside. Bismarck got his, of course. Wilhelm made him a prince and his chancellor. The normally stubborn southern German states flocked to Wilhelm's banner, of course, backed by Krupp guns. And speaking of Krupp, Alfred got his just desserts too, even though he had to give one of them to himself. As in, he had three statues made of himself. But the other gift was even better. Currency. Currency from around the world. Turns out that war was the best advertisement there was, especially a victorious one. And the Krupp concern grew. In 1873, his payroll was half again as large than 1870. And then came the Sino-Japanese War Scare of 1874-75. to the two combatants had been buying from Schneider and Armstrong. But once memoirs got out of those who survived the Franco-Prussian War, everyone now had to have Krupp guns. Soon, orders from Asia were flooding in, and Alfred was grateful. But not grateful enough. If the two Asian powers went to war, or fought someone else, they would have to do it without Alfred's latest and greatest weapons. But, as he justified gouging his newest clients, quote, Chinese and Siamese can blow their enemies to bits well enough with these, end quote. His latest guns went to Russia. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So, now that we have Alfred Krupp, who has come so far, so fast, at his height, um, I think we're going to leave the Krupps for a while, even though their influence and their power and their riches has only begun, um, and especially their influence over uh, national politics has only begun. We'll get back to them, and there's a lot of incredible things that they are involved in and a lot of um, heinous things as well. But we're going to take a break and uh, either go cover some of Jesse Owens in the 1930 Olympics in Berlin or the Americans in Paris during 1940, which I'm probably leaning that way. I'm looking at both books now and, and just trying to decide. Or if you want to um, make a suggestion, anything that hasn't happened yet in the main um, 
timeline on the podcast, that would be fine as well. And you can just send me, send me an email to ray at wwiipodcast.net. So um, I might end up taking a bit of a break in September, taking the family to the beach, but there will still be two membership episodes that month because that's what's fair to you guys. And I really do appreciate you subscribing and supporting the show. Um, There's a lot of time and books that go into it, and I just really do appreciate it. So again, thank you very much, and I will see you as soon as I can with uh, membership episode number 16.